Good evening. Good evening. Thank you, Adam, Laura, and to all the other worship leaders. That's amazing. I always think um, when we worship God and spend that time focused on worshipping God, I always think of in the book of Revelation where John describes his vision and he sees God and Jesus at the centre of the throne, at the throne, the Lamb of God, surrounded by four living creatures and then there's 24 elders and out, just radiating out from that point are all of creation worshipping the Lamb of God. And whenever we worship God, there's something in that where we are breaking through time and space, so to speak, and we're, we're joining with all of creation in this eternal thing that will last forever. And the, the living creatures, they, their song consists of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and so on and so on. And they never tire of singing those words as they look upon the Lord. So thank you for leading us in that, that moment. That's amazing. Um, my name is Ben Nowak. Um, I'm one of the elders here. I normally go to the morning service, but I've been coming to the night service from time to time, so I, some of your faces are certainly familiar to me, and that's a, a great joy to see so many of you here. My wife uh, is Lauren Nowak with our three children, making some noise in the, the back room there, and uh, playing Lego. So if, if this is no good, just Lego in the cry room. Uh, endless, endless fun. I want to also just acknowledge my mum and dad and my auntie Bernice who made the effort to come out tonight. So thank you for coming. Really appreciate it. Now, also, the green team, I am, as an elder of this church, I am so proud of what I hear you guys doing. Like, unbelievably proud that we have a church of young people, young adults, who are willing to give up days of their life to not just go away for a holiday, but to actually put into practice what is being taught, what is being, what they're learning through the Bible, and actually serve and be light and salt in the world. So thank you. Like, seriously, like, it makes me absolutely proud to see that happening. And I also am just so excited to be here tonight sharing with you, because I have this great sense of there is so much in store for you as a congregation, particularly now as we track into next year, now they've got Nick on board, so welcome to Nick again, so happy to have you here, um, but I'm just really excited about what God is doing through you guys here. Now, by way of context, as a church we've been working through, through the book of Romans, and we had a, bit, a few breaks there along the way, but we um, have been looking at the book of Romans and working through it in quite a detailed way. And we had a bit of a, a break for different reasons. And we're up to... Did you, uh, did you preach in Romans 14, I think? 15. So we've sort of we've, we've jumped ahead. Now we're going back to Romans 13. Now Romans 13, in essence, is about government. So fascinating, riveting com, uh, you know, content. But it's actually particularly important. I think even more important in the times that we live in now as Christians understanding how we as Christians position ourselves, posture ourselves towards government. And things, the world, Australia and the West generally is not the same as it was 20 years ago, it wasn't the same as it was 30 years ago. So all of a sudden there's this, you know, some tensions, some fractures, some 
things showing up in society that as Christians, all of a sudden we have to be extremely discerning and wise and understand how we as Christians actually live out our lives in Australia today. Now, what I'm going to do is I'll set the table for you, then we'll, we'll jump into the scripture and we'll eat. So, to set the table, I want to first of all have a look at government throughout history. So, when the church was first born, it was birthed where the government essentially was the Roman Empire, which was a powerful empire that had actually endured well, overall for thousands of years. But when Jesus was born, he was really born at a time when there was the rise of the empire. Before that, it was a republic. Then um, Julius Caesar, who you all probably know, he consolidated power. But then they really say that Caesar Augustus was the first emperor. And in him, they had, he had all lawmaking power. He was essentially a dictator. All judicial power. And all the, the bodies of government were invested in a single person. Not like today where we have the separation of powers and democracy, which we really just take for granted. It was all vested in one person, the emperor. Now, five emperors after um, Caesar Augustus at the time of Jesus, we have an emperor called Emperor Nero. Now, his full name was, or title was actually Emperor Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, but just for short, we'll call him Nero. So he was not a nice guy. He came to the throne at about the age of 16. He inherited it from, I believe it was his uncle. And he had a, if you read through the histories of the Roman, the Roman historians that give you know, an account of his, his, um, his rule, he was actually a pretty nasty guy. They say that there wasn't a single member of his family that escaped his personal cruelty. And in fact, he, he, he wiped them all off to the point where the idea with a, you know, dynasty is that you actually leave, you know, you keep someone to actually pass on the kingdom too. He killed everyone. And so when things got bad for him and he actually suicided when there was um, an open, you know, turmoil, he killed himself, but then there was no one left and they actually had to sort of jump in the line and someone else had to, had to take the place to become the next emperor. Now, throughout that time, if you're familiar with history, there was actually um, periods of persecution towards the church, then periods of peace, periods of persecution. And the era of Nero was renowned for the, uh, being an era of persecution against the church. It said that he organised for Rome to be burnt, that he sent out his henchmen to... You know, torch the city, and while it was burning, he was had something of a high opinion of himself as sort of a an orator, a playwright, as someone who was pretty good at everything. He actually, while the city was burning, he put on the costume of what they would use for uh, tra tragedies, and then he sang a tragedy from ancient, you know, Greek literature, playing his violin as the city burned. And as the city was burning, um, or after the city was burned, he actually blamed the Christians and used that as an excuse. He said the Christians burnt the city and therefore he used it as, as an excuse for further persecution. Now, I'll jump into our scripture. Our scripture today is Romans 13, chapter, chapter 13, verses 1 to, 1 to 7. So listen carefully. This sort of sets up the the basis for everything else we're going to be talking about. And what I want you to think about is 
Is this what you see being portrayed typically in the world today in terms of our attitude towards government? Because I think sometimes in Australia, and maybe it's a human nature thing, we can be particularly, um, you know, tall poppy syndrome. Politicians generally don't have a good reputation and it's easy to kick people who are sort of rising up. So I'll read the scripture. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore... It is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. As we fast forward through history, we jump into the 20th century, and so you think, well, were the excesses and the the madness at times of the Roman Empire, was that sort of unique to just a barbaric time in history 2,000 years ago? And have since the Enlightenment, have we all of of a sudden as as a society become wise, and are those excesses beyond us? I would say not. So if we look at the end of World War II, after World War II, Germany was in an extremely depressed state. The economy was running very poorly. And then in that environment, there arose a very extremely charismatic leader. When he spoke, he was just mesmerising to the people that would listen to him. They loved him. And he rose on a platform, essentially, of nation building... Um, advancing them in a nationalist, the German nation in, around nationalistic principles after the shame and the defeat of World War I. Now, in that environment, he was extreme, uh, Adolf Hitler. He, he sees power, and in that environment, he was able to use the church for his own purpose. And if you actually read through the history, it's really very disturbing. At that time, about 97 percent of people in Germany would say they were Christian, probably about one-third would have been Catholic, two-thirds Protestant. Now compare that to Australia today where you might say about 50% in the census today would say they're Christian. But in that environment, like they, these were sophisticated people, this was a modern, the modern era, these were people that had hundreds, even thousands of years of Christian heritage and yet in that environment somehow the madness of Nazi Germany was able to arise. Hitler was very clever. He wasn't stupid. And what he actually did was he, he didn't want to necessarily 
dismantle the church and the church structure and the church leadership altogether. But what he actually did was he used it. He could see that as as a useful tool for creating some unity. And what he did was he actually would put into positions of power within the church structure essentially his puppets and people that he could influence and the people that he could use to forward his agenda. And if you actually look through the the photos, there's an image there on the slide which shows this is actually in a church. And you think, what a tragedy. How did that ever happen? But it wasn't without some resistance. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one famous example. He was a Lutheran pastor and he could see what was going on what was going on within the church was wrong. And he actually stood up, he was outspoken, and he actually organised essentially a, parallel, you know, a, a church in parallel to the organised church which was under Nazi control to be truly free from the control of the government. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, interestingly, he was actually involved in a, an assassination attempt against Hitler which failed, And then he was hung by the Nazis, and you can see 1945, so just at the end of World War II. After World War II, if you know your history, uh, the Allied powers won. Nazi Germany was defeated. But in the wake of that, it wasn't all over. So what we had there, what what we're left with is essentially communist um, Russia, which then expanded to become the Soviet Union. And they, all the satellite nations around there, one by one, collapsed under communist power, which was really an, um, a driven ideology that was atheistic at, at its core, that was, had you know, very little time for Christianity. Um, and in Romania, this is, this is Pastor Richard Wombrand. Now, a similar thing happened under the communists in the fact that they actually used religion, used the church as much as possible for their own purpose. Um, Richard Wombrand, you see a photo of him up here on the left as a young man with his wife. When he was 39 years of age, he was riding his bicycle to church one morning because they didn't have cars. And all of a sudden he was um, pulled aside, a car pulled up, some secret police grabbed him, he was taken into the back of the van and he was then imprisoned for 14 years. Now his only crime was preaching the gospel. That's all that he did. And for three of those years, he was actually in solitary confinement. They did everything they could to break him. And it wasn't... um, He wasn't a unique case. Like, this this was widespread. And he... They used torture, they used mind control tricks to try to make people recant on their Christianity. Like, this wasn't... They didn't have the human rights that we sort of commonly accept in the West today as a whole they would try to break them and use different Pavlovian techniques to sort of manipulate their... He didn't break. But in that time, he said that he didn't have a Bible, he never, for solitary confinement, didn't see daylight, never saw any other person apart from the prison guards. And the prison guards would even wear soft padding on their feet so that the footprints of their... the, the footsteps of their approach couldn't be heard. And in that time of solitary confinement, what he did to keep himself sane was he actually, every day, he would write a sermon and then every night he would deliver it. And if you actually, you know, he's written, he's a prolific writer and unbelievably intelligent. You, know, you read his writings, unbelievable. And then after it, 
the fact he, you know, after he was later released, he's actually written these down. So you can actually read the sermons that he wrote in solitary confinement, and it's fascinating. So, what does this mean? Why do I give? Why do I start with Romans 13 and then, so to speak, to lay the table? What I'm trying to do is say, this is a hard passage to wrestle with. If we think government is bad in Australia right now, like, give me a break. We've actually got it pretty good. I, I'm, I am worried. <laughs> this, don't get me wrong. But in terms of, like, if, as you look throughout history, we are living in an unbelievably good time. And we should never forget that, but also be wise, understanding the times that we're in. So as we look at the scripture, Romans 13, we would be wise to listen to what God has to say to us and to actually draw out of this as much as we possibly can, not try to, to dodge or weave around what God is saying, but to take it on board. So what I've done is I've done a, a brief summary of some of the key things that I've drawn out this and broken it down into different headings. And I'll go through this, take it on board, and then we'll sort of um, take it a little bit further after that. So when Paul is teaching about government, he says, no authority exists except that which God has established. He just states that out there. He doesn't try to prove it at this point. He says, if there's an authority, it's been established by God. He also says that civil governments are an authority that have been established by God. In other words, if there's a civil government, it's one that God has established. At that point, he doesn't even actually look into the, the virtues or the vices of that government. Now... This is not only a great text for us as Christians and how we actually respond to government. It's actually, there's a lot in here. It deals with how the responsibilities of civil government as well, which I find fascinating. So it says this, the duty of civil gov government, as Paul described it, as God intended it, is that civil government, that they are God's servants to do good. That the civil government is to give themselves full time to governing, attending continually and persistently despite difficulties. And government is not easy. So there's a duty there for the civil government to persist in actually governing and trying to do good. Government should, should commend those who do right. It should certainly deter wrongdoers and punish wrongdoers. So you can see there's quite a lot there in terms of what an ideal government should look like. Now, for us as Christians, our duty as Christians is towards civil government is this, to submit. He makes it very clear that we are not to rebel, that we are to pay taxes. And if you actually look at the words used there, he, he says, uh, you know, different, a couple of different Greek words are used for tax, but the idea is, don't get cute. He means pay your tax, whatever the form. <laughs> pay your tax and there's certainly like if you, you don't have to look far you look online there's been a few Christians that sort of conscientiously objected to paying taxes then end up in prison and you think well if only they were here tonight I could have saved them like a seven-year prison term anyway or they could have read Romans 13 for themselves we are to respect and the word there is sort of a respect slash fear and I don't think it's fear in the terror but it's like an honor and we are to honor them we're, we're sort of as Christians, we shouldn't be the people that are just the critics writing nasty letters, 
kicking the government down, but seriously, like, government is a hard job. We should be the people that honour them, pray for them, commend them for their good work when they do good, and also, you know, there is certainly a place for, um, you know, voicing a Christian perspective in government. Now, in Romans 13, it says this, the consequences for doing good, why we would do this as a Christian, is to maintain a good standing and a clean conscience before God. We'll avoid punishment. Makes sense to me. You'll maintain a clean conscience. You won't have to avoid... You won't have to fear those in authority so that when the police pull you over, you won't have to worry about all the drugs in your boot or whatever nasty things you're doing. And you will be commended and praised by the authority for doing good. That's the position that we should all be in. Now, the wrongdoer... Romans 13 and this this is not just for Christians but this is across the board the wrongdoer when they rebel against government rebels against God incurs judgment on themselves from God incurs judgment on themselves from the civil government should fear the authority rightly and will suffer the consequences for their actions as imposed by civil government it's all actually pretty sensible advice and God is profoundly wise. So take, I think it's a great word. Now, one thing that I found is very interesting with this is there's a few times in the scripture where it talks about submitting. And sometimes I think there's a cultural cringe that I feel as well, particularly in the environment that we live in, where if someone's to say, submit to X, and almost to fill in the sentence with this to that, and it's almost as if, no way. I'm an individual. I will do what I want. And I'm, you know, I'm the sovereign individual and I will submit to no one. And I will only submit to government as much as I absolutely need to. And I won't even submit to them if I can get away with, if I don't, you know, if I can do it and not get, and get away with it. But if you look at, there's a consistent pattern throughout scripture where it uses this same word, hypotasso, and which is used in Romans 13, and essentially it's this, and I, I want to just look at this for a moment because I think we need to understand, this is really important understanding, whenever God uses the word submit in scripture, it's for a purpose. And the word basically is hypo, under, so if you've studied science you would have come across that word, hypo, uh, or the hypo is under, and tasso, arrange. So it's an ordered arrangement. It's saying nothing about one person being better than the other. Does that make sense? Just because you submit to someone else doesn't mean the person that you're submitting to is greater than you because you're submitting to them. But so often it's simply God arranging order in society in society, because, as it says in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of disorder but of peace. And we can think Jesus, even though he was God, submitted to his parents, submitted to the authorities at his, of his time. He, he, didn't, he didn't raise a rebellion against the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities. And in the same way, if you look throughout Scripture, the, it's very clear in the New Testament that um, the Bible says, submit to one another in love. It says, you know, as essentially as... It says, slaves, submit to your masters. And I think it's a very fair analogy that in the same way we as employees... <laughs> should submit to those that we work for in that the same that honor that respect we should submit to them it also says you know wives submit to your husbands topical in this day and age but i think properly understood it's a beautiful thing 
Now, I will say this in that context, that and generally across the board, when I think, whenever God, whenever the Scripture teaches about submission, sub- submission, it's not something to be demanded, but something to be willingly given by the God, by the one whom God gives the command. So, for example, in my marriage with Lauren, if I was to say, Lauren, you must submit to me. I think I'd be setting myself up for a pretty poor marriage. My, my God's word to me as a husband is to love my wife and to serve her as Christ served the church. Does that make sense? So there, there's an important subtlety there and sometimes it can be really twisted and has been twisted and misused and abused and maligned, I think, the scriptures in the name of Christ because the, the, the spirit, the heart, which is really very clear, is completely missed. But God is a God of order. Is not a, but God, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Now, the twist in all of this is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote, Roman, wrote the book of Romans, Romans 13 included, he wasn't writing it in a, in a time of ideal government. Even though he described this ideal relationship between government, <clears throat> you know, the governed and so on, he was certainly living, he lived in the time of Nero. So here we see, I've got some photo uh, or paintings, one we see Paul's conversion and then we see him writing the epistles but then ultimately it said that in about 64, 67, um, the year 64, 67, he, well you actually read about it in the book of Acts, you know how the book of Acts is sort of him basically tracking towards Rome at the end and it's almost as though the story is cut short. I've always felt like the book of Acts stops short but we know he's going to Rome. But there's, there's other sources that do tell us that Paul uh, made it to Rome and it was in fact executed under Emperor Nero. His head was taken off. So, what does that mean for us? As I was studying and preparing this message, you, you can read a lot of uh, commentators and theologians who have provided commentary on this Romans 13. And... A lot of them have a, you know, you struggle, I struggled with sort of taking their advice, their, their commentary fully on board because you can see the challenge here. What do you do when you have hellish governments with godly people? And like, do you submit passively all the way? Do we do nothing? Is our role just to sit back and absolutely do nothing? Because I think it's, it's clear that we are to submit. It's submit that God is a God of order um, but Richard Wombrand, he, he spoke specifically about this, this chapter, but I'd, I want to read this quote from him. And I think he was particularly relevant because of what he did experience under bad government, and he still maintained his faith. So he said, Richard said this. Many of the influential... This, this is speaking about the time in Romania where there's this tension between bad government and people trying to just live out their Christian faith, as the Bible says. Many of the influential Christian leaders had not realised the danger of communism. Some had sympathised with it. Others would confine themselves to what they understood to be a pure gospel, not mentioning the communist menace, because this would mean becoming involved in politics. But when communist politicians enter in the sphere of religion introducing their, their poison or persecuting the children of God, 
politics is forced upon us. It cannot and should not be avoided. Who thinks that he can separate who thinks he can separate religion from politics knows neither religion nor politics. And as Christians, we, we stand with a very interesting legacy. Even though we have this verse about submitting to government, if you actually look back, Jesus was executed by the authorities. Peter was drawn before the authorities and eventually executed in Rome as well, as was Paul. And in fact, tradition would tell us that all of the 12, all the 11 apostles were, you know, paid the price of their life for their faith. So in Acts, we read about the apostles preaching God's word after the day of Pentecost. The power of the Holy Spirit is upon them. People are being converted in mass and it's stirring up trouble amongst the Jewish leaders. And so in Acts 5, it says this. They brought them, the apostles, in and made them stand before the Sanhedrin, where the high priest interrogated them. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us responsible for this man's blood. But Peter... And the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. So how, how do we reconcile this with Romans 13? In summary, when the government forbids you to do what God has commanded you to do, you obey God and accept the consequences. So in to further just expand on that slightly, it's, it's a, you accept the consequences. They didn't, the apostles in that instance, they didn't sort of call for a revolt, but they, they'd be like, Richard Wombrand put it well. He, he talked about it in, in uh, the camp when, they were, when he was imprisoned and it was almost, they were forbidden to preach, but they would preach in small groups among the other prisoners, you know, preach and lead in worship and so on. And... The consequence for that would be they'd come, grab the person who was leading it, take them away, they'd incur some pretty harsh punishment, but then they'd be returned and they'd just continue doing what they were doing before. So they would know that for the disobedience there was a price, they'd pay the price and then keep obeying God. Does, does that make sense? It's not, so in other words, you don't just sort of call for a revolt and a rebellion, but understand that there's a, it's like a passive resistance. We will keep doing what God calls us to do there is a price, we will accept the price and we will keep on doing what God has called us to do. I love this, this, um, this painting on the right where it's actually called The Gladiator's Wife. And I, this really <laughs> struck me because you can see there the, the jeering crowd, the focus, everyone else going the other way. And there's one woman that is struck with the price, you know, is... is mortified and horrified by what is going on and is going the other way. And I love the story of Daniel and I love that image where we see the serenity there in Daniel as an old man having defied the command of the king and yet even in that circumstance, like I've said, you know, he obeyed God and he paid the price and in that instance God preserved him. So the call. So what do we do with this? I'm really excited about what God is doing among us at Hills. I can see so much ahead 
Like I think as a church, like we're really just at the beginning. And as we move forward as a church, you know, as um, we talked about earlier, our vision is to see Jesus glorified, hope lives transformed, and hope revealed. And this is the thing is that we will just keep going back to that. We want to see Jesus glorified. We are going to see Jesus glorified. And so on. So the call is this. For all of us to be a people who are deeply and authentically discipling after Jesus. I I have this sense that um, I really don't know. I really don't know what the future holds. And I've had this thought that if... If, if things turn for the worst in Australia, really like really go pear-shaped for the church or in the West, and we shift somehow to the point where we're persecuted, you want to be ready as a Christian. You want to be strong in your faith. You want to be at a point almost as a church that even as a church, like if we were dispersed as a church, that every single one of you would have the maturity in your faith to essentially start your own church wherever you are. Does that make sense? What about the flip side of that? What if God actually does such an amazing, powerful thing in our church where there's you know, a, a revival God moves throughout the hearts of all of our neighbours and all of a sudden we have 400 people coming here every weekend wanting to hear God's word, wanting to worship the Lord together with us. What if God does that? At this, in the same thing, you, you want to be ready. If all these people come into the church all of a sudden that don't know the most basic things about the Bible and come with all sorts of baggage, you want to be ready. You want to be ready. <clears throat> so we are to be a people that are deeply and authentically discipling after Jesus, to be a people who deeply love our nation, our city and our local community, that we're not just here in this building doing our thing and then the world is out there but that we have a heart for it and I think of Moses intercession like there is there's a power God for those that intercede and those that pray and those that seek God for their nation their community and the call is there for us we're to be a people who commit with their time talent and treasure to advance the kingdom that we're not half-hearted about this, that we're fully in, that we are preparing, that we are sowing for, for God's kingdom. And this was really on my heart as I was preparing this, that you are the leaders of the next generation. And the average age in the, the night congregation is you know, young, younger than the, the morning service, but before you know it, you'll be in positions of power, authority, responsibility, that it'll surprise you how quickly that comes. And to realise that and to own that and to know that this is a time of preparation, that this is a time to actually sow into your own lives the the disciplines that you need to be the leaders that God has called you to be in this time, in this nation, in this community, to not squander the days that you have now. I remember... When I first became a Christian, and there's a, there's a story behind that, I sort of ran away from God for a, a season, and then I came back. And then I was doing a, a six-month course at TAFE and welding, and I was planning to go on and do the next six-month course at TAFE, but then it was, there wasn't sufficient numbers in it. And so they 
delayed, postponed that course for six months. And every Saturday, my, my grandma, who was a you know, committed Christian, she would come to our house and um, help out around the place. And I remember her coming up to me one time at that season. And I, really, I was a, you know, a very young Christian. I'd been way off track and had a lot of baggage and everything else that I really needed to clean up. But she came up to me and she said to me, held my hand, and she said, God's given you this time to prepare. And she wasn't a charismatic lady in terms of theology, but I think in that moment she was prophesying to me, this is a time of preparation. Don't squander it. And in that time I prepared. I I read the word. I sowed in prayer. And there's a unique thing about being young without marriage, without children, without full-time commitments with work generally, where you have a lot more time. And I want to encourage us as a church that in this season, you discern the season of your life, that you sow and you set the foundation and the launch pad for the rest of your life where you've sown the seed, where you've built things up to position yourselves to do everything God is calling you to do in the next season. The worst thing you could do in this season is to sow the seeds of weeds and how easily that can happen, you know. And so how sad would it be to use this season that God has called you to put good seed in good soil so that you produce a harvest throughout your life? You know, that's what God wants you to do. And so don't squander your days. Now, in closing, I wanted to turn our attention to the Australian Constitution. We're not in the United States, so we don't hold to our Constitution and so on with quite the same fervour, but it's still a very important document that sort of binds us together as a, as a Commonwealth. Now, the very first words of the Australian Constitution are this, and maybe the musicians, you could come up. The very first words to the Australian Constitution is this. Whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown. Humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. My prayer is that we as a nation, that this will always be true for us as a nation, that we always, as Australia, humbly rely on the blessing of Almighty God. And there's certainly are forces now that would, would love to just delete that out. They'd love to take God out of Australia, take God out of any mention within government. But I want to encourage you, you are the leaders of the next generation. Take hold of it. Don't be shy. Be bold in the way that you live in the world. Recognise that this is a season of preparation. And God's calling you to do great things, really great things. I think if, if you commit your life to God fully, wholly, lay yourself before him, pursue him in discipleship, say, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Lay your life down before him for his service. Be bold in what you, how you live. 
if people, if, 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 if it could be explained to you now what God is calling you to do, you wouldn't believe it. Really wouldn't believe it. It would blow your mind. Imagine, imagine you know, greater than you could ask for or imagine. And so my call is to prepare, to sow, and even tonight as we close, and maybe if we all stand at this point, to turn your hearts and turn your eyes towards those things in your life that are holding you back, the things that are holding you back from committing fully to your discipleship after Jesus, um, looking at your own life, knowing that this is a season of preparation for the season that follows. I, I had this real sense as I was preparing that even, even next year, I think there's going to be things that were sufficient for this season of your life. God has equipped you for where you're at now. But as you move into the next season, you're not ready. And God wants to equip you and prepare you for that next season. But what it means is it's a time of preparation. It's a time of discipleship. It's a time of pursuing God afresh in your own space, as in your own life every day. And God will prepare you. And so come six months from now, all of a sudden you'll be faced with things, situations, and you'll be ready because God has made you ready. So let us pray. Turn our eyes to the Lord. Turn your hearts to the Lord as we come into this time of worship. I'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. And you've blessed us with a great nation, the nation of Australia. And I pray that in this church here, that you would make us, Lord God, a nation of kings and priests, people who love Australia, who love our community. And I pray that, Lord God, that even tonight, that you would impart into every heart here, Lord God, something fresh, something new. I pray that, Lord God, that you would sow seeds tonight, that, Lord, that, that land as good seed in good soil, and I pray that, Lord God, that you'd cause each and every single person in this room, Lord God, to rise up as the leaders, Lord God, of the next generation, as the leaders now. And that, Lord, that we as a church would be ready, that we would be equipped, that our eyes would be on you. And that, Jesus, that we would see you glorified, that we would see lives transformed and that we would see hope revealed. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.